It's always helpful when uh, you come to a passage of Scripture, and I would encourage you to do this in your reading and in your study. You come to a practice, make it a practice of yours, when you come to a verse that is packed with knowledge and truth and deep, obviously deep truth, back up for a moment and look where you came from. Gather yourself. I want us to do that now because we're about to deal with a very heavy and deep and some may think difficult verse in John 1.14. We're going to deal with the incarnation, the transcendence and eminence of the Word. But before we go into John 1.14, I think it helps us today to go back and look where we've come from. Because the point of John in this gospel, is stated in chapter 20 when he says, I write this gospel that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that, you may, that by believing you may have life in His name. John's not just writing a book of facts or knowledge or truth. John is writing so that the people who read it and hear it in his day and in our day might believe, might place their life and their trust in this man, God, named Jesus, and trust in Him fully for salvation, that they might have life in Him. There's an outflow from the truth. It's not just cold, hard facts John is writing. John is passionate about his subject, and he's trying to persuade you. And so I want to do the same. Look back there into verse 1, because it's verses 1 through 5 who give us a deep theology of the eternal nature of God. The Word is God. The Word is the Creator. The Word is life, and the life is the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness, no matter how strong it is, cannot overcome it. We should all remember that the eternal nature of the Word is emphasized to us in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. He's mimicking for us Genesis 1-1, I believe. In the beginning, God. He says, in the beginning, the Word was the Word, in other words. And so he's stressing the eternal nature nature of God, not only the eternal nature of the Word, but the deity of the Word, the Godness of the Word. It's not just some general force out there like people in our day talk about God as some unknown mystical thing that kind of floats around somewhere in the universe, out of the universe, kind of unknown to anybody, fuzzy to us. John says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was God. He is God. He's giving us a hard look at the deity of the Word. And then he goes on and says that this Word is masculine in verse 2. And that's very important because I said when we studied this, God could not have come in the form of a woman because nor could He be the daughter of God. The Word is the Son of God. It is masculine. It is the Word is masculine. It is the Son. We should remember also that the eternal nature of the Word is shown to us to be supremely powerful. And it contains all life, and life is light. And remember that we said that life and light are things that are not necessarily created, but they just come from, they flow out of the very essence of who God is. Life comes from the Word. It is not necessarily a substance in this verse where John is saying it's substantial or physical. Although that is in this verse, he's saying life is bigger than physical. 
Life is a characteristic of the eternal nature of God. God is life. The Word is life. He's again drawing here some very strong and deep truths to us and that life is the light of men. And the light is shining in the darkness and the darkness, no matter how dark it is, cannot comprehend it. And then he says in 6-9 through nine that he's sending a torchbearer, a small light to proclaim the coming of the big light like we said, a light bulb in comparison to the sun. No matter how powerful a light bulb is, it can't compare to the power of the sun. And John the Baptist is like a light bulb. He's shining in the darkness to say the light is coming. The light is coming. Repent and believe. The light is coming. And then the sun breaks. Jesus Christ breaks like the S-U-N sun. When the sun comes, the darkness goes away. It hides. And remember I gave the example that it is revealing. It's coming to all men because it's revealing to all men that they are sinners. Remember, I said everybody that comes into the world receives that knowledge, that they are fallen, that they are sinners. It's like the uh, pastor who said, when you cut the light on, the darkness, that's like Jesus coming, and the darkness that remains hides underneath things and behind things. It's still there, but it's exposed. It doesn't like to be exposed, and so it rejected the light. That's significant. It doesn't want to be exposed, so it rejected the light. In other words, it's like the blind man who can't see the light. He says, I don't see the light, so there is no light. There's a light. Just because you're blind and can't see it doesn't mean there's not a light and doesn't mean you're not responsible to know there's a light. So we've got a lot of blind people, and then we talked about that in the world, who they cannot see it. It's not that they're, not only are they saying, I don't want to see it, they cannot see it. They physically cannot see or spiritually cannot see the light. And he came to his own nation, the Israelites, and the Israelites rejected him, we said. And this was a deep rejection because they had received the prophets and the law and they had received all of the things necessary for salvation throughout the Old Testament. He come particularly to them and through them. And now Jesus is born to them who God had proclaimed would come. Not only had he generally said it, he specifically said he would come from a virgin. He specifically said he would be born in the city of David. He specifically said he would come... And be, uh, and be a forerunner would be there before him like Elijah. And all of these prophecies came true and the people of Israel saw it and rejected it. They saw it, they knew it, and they said, we don't believe this is the Messiah. We reject it. He came into his own people and his own people didn't receive him. And so there's rejection. And so we left that day saying, well, where is hope? Hope is in the next verse as we look at verse 12. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God who believe who were born not of the flesh or not of the will of man, born not of the blood, not of, nor of the will of man, nor of the flesh, but of God. So they were, they can't, it's not their heritage that saves them, John says. It's not the will of your emotion. It's not that you got excited about some truth. And say, oh, that's exciting, that's true. That doesn't save you. It's not that you determined you would be saved. I know it's true, so I'm going to make myself believe it. I'm going to make myself accept it. That's not how you're saved. You're saved by God. The truth is, God sovereignly chose, we said, some from every tribe and every nation to be His children through the power and permission of His Son, Jesus Christ. 
So that's the background that we gain as we look at the chapter and we come down to verse 14 and it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This verse is magnificent. It's magnificent when we step back in, from our current setting and look at it in its original context. The transcendent and eternal God. Think about that. The transcendent, eternal Word of God put on flesh. We, we just breeze through God's Word. We just read on past these statements like, oh, well, that's no big deal. That's no sweat. That's nothing exciting. Think about it deeply. Eternal stepped into time. He had never been bound by time. He had never been governed by time. He had never been limited by time. And yet, the eternal came into time. Now the Word would be bound by time, bound in location, all of these things. And the Word became flesh. That's that's what he's saying. The eternal, transcendent, great, powerful God came to the earth. And the Word became flesh. Not only does he say he came into the world, but he picks the one adjective or thing to describe him as flesh. There were many words in their language to talk about humanity. This is the very base, lowest term he could have chosen. Not the the great human who's more powerful than all the other creatures in creation. No, the flesh. He put on the weakness, the flesh. The one thing that makes you and I weak is our flesh. We're limited because of our flesh. I would do a lot of things that I can't do because of my flesh. And now, John says... The Word put on flesh. He came in humility. He came as a servant. He came lowly. He came born in a manger to common parents in a common town with a common upbringing and a common Jewish custom. Just like all the other little Jewish boys in his town, he was raised just like them. This is not just some mere statement to glib past and continue on in thought. We should ponder these things. It seems absurd to the natural mind to think that the eternal can come and be in time. It is absurd to my mind to think. It seems impossible to think the most powerful, the most transcendent, the most wonderful, the most magnificent of all things could come and be in the flesh. It seems impossible to me. But I believe it because the Word of God says it. And in the 21st century, we're not that far different than the 1st century people that read this. They were Jewish. They, they, they knew that when they heard this, John knew they would either believe it was a miracle or it was blasphemous. It, it has to be one of the two. There's no middle ground here. You ever ran into those people in our day who say Jesus is just a good guy? Jesus is just a moral man. Well, I agree with the hundreds who have said this before me. This is not original. He is either a lunatic or He is the Lord. He's either a liar or He's the Lord. He can't be a good man. He can't be moral. 
John is taking that option away from you and I. You can't just believe Jesus is like Mohammed or some other great prophet who came and spoke to us. He's either who He says He is and He's Lord, or He should be hung on a tree and killed for blasphemy. Because this is a great claim. This is a powerful truth John is pointing out to us. And so they would have heard from John, the Jews, in their day. The God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was now living in flesh among them. Had lived in the flesh with them. They've worshipped Jehovah. They wouldn't even speak His name. They were so reverent of Him. And now what John is saying is, Jehovah is in the flesh. He lived with you. Don't miss that fact because it's so common to us. This is a great truth. Think about it. Let your mind take your 2,000 years of church history and all the smart people who wrote commentaries, throw them in the garbage for a moment and think about how radical John is being when he says, this is what took place in Jesus Christ. That the eternal became bound by time and the eternal came in the form of flesh. He's God with us, God in the flesh, eternal and infinite Word of God, humble to the lowly state of a man. John shows the powerful contrast by choosing the humble words of flesh. The, the Sunday before Christmas, I preached on this passage, and I focused in on the Word became flesh. That was the title of the message. And in that message, I emphasized the statement, the Word pitched His tent among us. Maybe you can't remember that message. I don't pretend, by the way, that everybody remembers everything I've ever said. I don't remember everything I've ever said. And so I went back to my notes. I remembered a lot of what I said. But I went back to my notes to gather for you in review of what I said about the Word became flesh, the Word pitched His tent and dwelt with us, or as the Greek says, tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. Okay? And I stress the comparison being drawn between Exodus 25.8 in the Old Testament when God said, gather from the people offerings and make me a tabernacle. That's what 25.8 says. If you go read Exodus 25, 26, 27, 28, you get the description of how they made a tabernacle for God. But on His command, make me a tabernacle, a tent of dwelling. God was saying then, I'm pitching my tent with you. That's what he was saying. And John says, that is only a shadow of what Jesus is. Now God has pitched His tent with us eternally in Jesus Christ. He's come to us in the form of His Son, Jesus. Jesus is the center of the camp, I said, number one. Just like the tabernacle was the center of their camp in the wilderness, Jesus is the center of our life. Jesus is the embodiment, embodiment of the truth of the law of God. That's the second point. In, in the tabernacle was the law of God was kept in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, the law of God. And so what John is saying when he says he tabernacled with us, it contains the idea that he perfectly obeyed the law, Jesus did. And now he is the embodiment of the law in our lives. He lived it. He completed it. He was perfect in it unto death. Third, Jesus is the dwelling place of God. The tabernacle is where God came down and met with His people. 
And now God has done this in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the revelation of God. The tabernacle was the place where they were communicated to from God through the prophet Moses and his brother Aaron. And now Jesus is the communication of God about Himself to us. Jesus is the sacrifice of God. That's the fifth point. In the tabernacle, the people brought sacrifices to give for their sins. And in Jesus, we have the ultimate and final sacrifice of God that we might have forgiveness eternally for our sins. Finally, Jesus is to be worshipped. For the people of Israel, they were wandering in the desert. The tabernacle was the place they went for worship. And this is what... We don't go to a place for worship. We go to Jesus and we worship. Day and night, any day of the week, we worship through Jesus Christ. So He tabernacled with us. He was the dwelling of God with us. God in Exodus said, make a tent. And in John, John says He's done more than a tent. He's done more than make you a tent. He sent His Son who is the ultimate tabernacle. The tabernacle, not made with hands, but made by God Himself. And so there should be no doubt that John is paralleling these two passages, I think. That's the point of John in the first section of the verse. John goes even further in this text. That's not all he says. Look with me at the second part. And the Word became flesh... And dwelt among us, tabernacled. We just talk about that. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. It's helpful for us to understand two things about this part of the text. I want you to write these down. I want you to remember these. Jesus displays the glory of the Father. Jesus displays the glory of the Father. This glory is grace and truth. We can understand the phrase grace and truth. We can connect that to two, one of two things. We can connect it directly to the Son in the verse. Look at the verse 14. Do a little grammar here so we can get to the practical, so we can see what this means to us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We can say the Son is full of grace and truth. We could say that. We have that option. The second option is to say the glory of God is grace and truth. And it is displayed by the Son sent from the Father. That's a slight difference, but it's very important. Because in our day... We hear people talking, and we often fall in this trap of talking about the characteristic of God, glory. Right? We talk about it all the time. We teach our children to say, why did God do it? Best answer, for His own glory. Not to, not to you know, go too far here, but I want you to think. Someone may be asking among us, what is grace? What is glory? Have you ever thought about that? Okay, it's weight. The Hebrew word means weight. It means the imprint. That weight brings an imprint, an impression. So the glory of God has an impression. It makes an impact on you. I've heard all these definitions. It's wonderful definitions. But I think the inspired definition of the glory of God is grace and truth. The glory of God is grace and truth. That's what makes Him glorious. Because at the same time, Romans 3 says, He is just 
and the justifier. Glory. Nobody else can do that very well. If you try to be gracious to everybody, you'll get run over. They'll take advantage of you. They'll blaspheme you in a way. And you won't be able to be just. But God has found a way in Himself, in His own character. That's what makes Him so glorious. He's just and He's the justifier. He's both. And so John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Notice in your English text, the next phrase is set off by commas. Because I believe those who translated the Bible from the original to English, the original language to English, understood what I'm saying. They're implying it with a comma. Parenthetical phrase, we have beheld His glory, the glory as of the only Son sent from the Father. That's parenthetical. That's non-consequential to what He's really saying. We beheld His glory full of grace and truth. That's what's glorious. He's full of grace and truth. And it comes to us. It's delivered to us in the package of His Son, Jesus Christ. In the end, we know this. Jesus is the purest and highest revelation of the glory of God. The glory of God is full of grace and truth. Therefore, Jesus is full of grace and truth. And the important point we can make here is that the glory is objectively defined by John. It is not some mystical, wishy-washy, non-consequential idea. Glory is consequential. It is not wishy-washy. It is defined. And John says it is grace and truth. So what is grace? That's the next logical question. If glory is grace and truth, those are, see, three words I've used. Glory, grace, and truth ought to bring up in your mind. What is the definition of this? What does it mean? Grace. Kindness and love of God our Savior toward man. It might be helpful to look at it this way. Grace is the exact opposite of works. Grace is not only undeserved favor. It is undeserved favor shown to the one who deserved the exact opposite. It's not that humanity was neutral and needed grace. In other words, that we had never sinned and we just needed some help. We deserve the wrath of God and God graciously gives us the gift of God, Jesus Christ. Grace can be defined as not works, but receiving the gift that when we really deserved the wrath. We receive a gift from God instead of the wrath of God. That is a definition, a good, concise definition of grace. Look back at some examples in the Scripture. Adam and Eve sinned against God who had just... And, and He had the right, if He was desiring to just, to only be just, to wipe them off the face of the earth, send them directly to hell... Do not pass go and do not collect $100. Go straight there. He could have done that. He would have been just in doing it. We know this because of Noah and the flood. He acted that way with everyone in Noah's day except Noah and his sons and their families, right? He wiped it away. He could have not only wiped away humanity because of the sin of Adam, he could have wiped away the entire creation because of the sin of Adam. He could have just done away with it. If he'd have wanted to be just. If he'd have wanted to just be truth. And the statement would still be true and all of heaven would still proclaim 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come as we see the declaration in Revelation 4. That would still be true if God had acted justly with Adam and wiped him away. But He didn't do that. He from the very beginning had grace on Adam. Adam sinned. God had the right to punish him eternally for his sin. And He didn't. He drew near to him. He called him to a relationship. He clothed him in righteousness. And He put his feet on the narrow way and He gave him grace. He said, this is the standard and the standard requires death and the standard requires destruction so I will kill an innocent one and I will clothe you in its righteousness. And Adam received the gospel, the grace and truth of God, the glory of God. He saw it tangibly. Tangibly in his day. And we see it still today even further revealed and explained to us. And so if you're here today and you're saved, you've received grace and truth in your life. That's the gospel. It is Jesus Christ. It comes because the Word became flesh and dwelt with us. But if you're not saved here today, you have received grace thus far. Because you living in your sin deserve to be punished today. And yet God in His great grace and mercy is not punishing you today. As a matter of fact, in God's way of graciousness, He is pouring out on you what is known as common grace this very moment. You just drew a new breath. Your heart just beat again. You're going to go home and eat lunch or go to a restaurant and eat lunch. You've got a family. You've got a job. You have life. You have the grace of God in you and on you now. And it's called common grace. In other words, it's extended to everybody who lives for a season. But I want to warn you with the words in closing. I want to warn you with the words of one of the greatest preachers of all time that the day of grace that we live in today will come to an end for everyone outside of Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt with us that we might believe in Him and receive the right to be children of God. And having received that and become children of God, the day of grace goes on for eternity. We will never be separated from Him. There is now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. But if you are not in Christ Jesus, then I believe that one of the greatest sermons ever preached on this subject, and if you are lost here today, if you do not know Jesus Christ, if you say, I have common grace, but I have no idea who Jesus is, and I've always rejected Him, I want to read you some words that should cause you to think seriously about our God and how great He is. The use of this awful subject, the the preacher said, may be for awakening uncovered persons in this congregation. This that you have heard is the case of every one of you that are out of Christ, outside of Christ. That world of misery, that lake of burning brimstone is extended abroad under you. There is the dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. There is hell's wide gaping mouth open and you have nothing to stand upon nor anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell but the air. It is only the power and mere grace of God that holds you up. You probably are not sensible of this. You find you are kept out of hell, but do not, know, do not see the hand of God in it. But look at other things. 
as the good t- state of your bodily constitution, your care for your own life and the means you use for your own preservation. But indeed, these things are nothing. If God should withdraw His hand, if God should remove His grace and act on you in justice, your power would avail you no more to keep you from falling than the thin air to hold up a person that is suspended in it. Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let go of you, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf and your health, constitution, and your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. Were it not for the sovereign grace of God, the earth would not bear you one moment. For you are a burden to the earth. The creation groans with you. The creation is made subject to the bondage of your corruption, not willingly. The sun does not willingly shine upon you to give you light to serve sin and Satan. The earth does not willingly yield her increase to satisfy your lust. Nor is it willingly a stage for your wickedness to be acted upon. The air does not willingly serve you for breath to maintain the flame of life in your vitals while you spend your life in the service of God's enemies. God's creatures are good and were made for men to serve God with and do not willingly serve anyone with any other purpose. And it groans, the creation groans when they are abused to purposes so directly contrary to their nature and end. And the world would spew you out were it not for the sovereign hand of the grace of Him who had subjected it in hope. There are black clouds of God's wrath now hanging directly over your heads, full of the dreadful storm and big with thunder. And there is not for the restraining hand of God, were it not for the restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst forth upon you. The sovereign grace of God for the present stays this His rough wind. Otherwise, it would come with fury and your destruction would come like a whirlwind and you would be like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in His sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable to Him than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in your eyes. You have offended Him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did His prince, and yet it is nothing but His mere grace that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night that you was suffered to awake again to this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no reason other than His grace to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God 
provoking His pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending His solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. Oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand and grace of God, whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against any of those damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder, and you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold to save your life, nothing to keep you off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. And so it is the grace of God that spares you from this fate. It is because God is great in His own glory of grace and truth, that He sent His Son to dwell with us, to tabernacle with us, and to offer us not just justice, but a mediator, a justifier, someone who can take you from the flame of hell and place you in security, someone who can safely transport you from sin to righteousness, Someone who can offer you salvation. The glory of God is first of all gracious. And next week we'll see that it's true. But I want you to consider the salvation of God. God has pitched His tent with us in the form of His Son, Jesus Christ. The glory of God is revealed in the person of Christ. And that glory is best understood as grace and truth. Consider and trust the grace of God through Jesus Christ today so that you might be saved for eternity. Father, it's very serious when we consider our natural state. There's nothing to compare to the dread of hell. Oh, it's dreadful because of its pain. And we know that that pain is real. We have portraits of it in your scripture where those who are there groan and scream and cry out for mercy and have no mercy given. We see portraits of it where they beg that the very mountains would fall on them to hide them from your righteous, just law. But there is nothing to hide them. They are fully exposed. And so there are lost men in this room. And as only Jonathan Edwards can say, I think, they are hanging by a mere thread of grace. And Lord, I pray that they would consider themselves blessed to have sat and heard the truth. And I pray that your spirit would give them life that they might respond to this truth. And if they are not saved, Lord, that they would not wait and delay, but that they would call out to You and beg You for mercy. Lord, we thank You
that for those of us who are saved, there is grace and truth. We see the standard, Lord. We know the standard is holiness. And Lord, we also know we cannot meet the standard. And so we're thankful for the truth, but we're thankful for grace. We're thankful for grace, Jesus Christ, who has come and fulfilled it so we, on our behalf, and now lives and resides through the Spirit in us as believers so that we can say yes to the Spirit and yes to the law of the Spirit and yes to you and obedience instead of being bound to sin and failure. And so help us this week to begin to think about this truth and help us in the weeks to come as we stay in this verse and think about the deep truths. Help us to begin later once having the truth to apply it into our lives, help us not to simply jump to application in our minds and start trying to draw parallels in our own life. Just help us to accept truth today and come back hungry for more truth in the weeks to come and then to apply that truth to our lives. Lord, help us because if not, we will weary and we will not want to listen and we will rebel. So change our minds and help us to see it and hear it and believe it and accept it and live it. In the days to come, we love you and praise you. And it is in your precious name that we pray. Amen. There are.